All right, thank you very much, uh, Scott, for setting us up there. Um, if I have not met you, my name's Bob Erbig. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, just on behalf of everybody who's greeted you before, I want to greet you again. Thank you so much for worshiping with us, whether you are online or in person. Um, we are in the middle of a series looking at the character of Israel's kings. We're calling it The Trials and Triumphs of Israel's Kings. It's a study through the book of First and Second Kings. And uh, last week, Pastor Dave did a wonderful job unpacking uh, that famous confrontation on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Uh, today, what I'd like to do is take a deeper dive into the person who was king of Israel at that time, a king named Ahab. And we just read about him in 1 Kings uh, 16. Now, Ahab had a problem, and it's a problem I think many of us face. He had a fascination with the forbidden. And so as we begin today, what I'd like to do is ask you to just close your eyes and picture your favorite fruit. Picture your favorite fruit. Uh, maybe it's a crunchy apple. Maybe it's a, uh, a succulent strawberry, a delicious blueberry. Some of us are picturing peeling a banana. Others of us are debating whether tomatoes are actually a fruit and can be included in this exercise. Uh, that's okay. We'll include them. One of my favorite fruits is a pear, a nice, juicy pear. Now, I want you to picture and imagine whether that, if that fruit that you, you like so much, if it was forbidden to you, what would you do to get it? Now, there's a famous story told by St. Augustine in his book, The Confessions, and it's, as the story goes, it talks about when he was a teenager, he ran with an unruly crowd, and one night, after they had finished playing in the streets of their neighborhood, one person came up with an idea, and their idea was to go steal some pears. I guess I would have been there since I like pears so much. The group went over to a tree that didn't belong to one of their families. They shook it, and they began to vigorously pick up as many pears as they possibly could. Now, I know some of you are saying, uh, stealing pears is not my idea of danger and rebellion. But here's an interesting thing, though. When Augustine recalled the event, he made the point of saying that none of them actually liked pears. They just wanted to steal them. In fact, look at what he writes. He says this. He says, we carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs after barely tasting them ourselves. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Because it was forbidden. Now, there's something about the forbiddenness of a thing that makes us want it more, isn't there? Now, now perhaps, uh, you know, real fruit don't entice you to, uh, you know, go and steal them. You know, tomatoes and strawberries aren't going to make you break any laws, but I suspect we all have something, a forbidden something, that can take us to the edge of danger. In fact, I'll give you a couple examples. Maybe you're a Maybe you're a career person here today or listening today and you desire the promotion that promises you more power and prestige in the company. But when you're passed over, when that promotion is forbidden to you, you start to think, well, I'll do whatever I need to to get ahead because we want what we cannot have. I've given countless talks to teenagers on waiting until you're married to have sex. And yet there's an allure because of the forbiddenness that's associated with it that makes the teenager or the young adult ask, how far is really too far? 
We want what we cannot have. Or we need to look no further than, than little kids, right? If you have a, a little kid and you tell them not to touch a hot pan, what is the thing they constantly want to do? Touch the hot pan. Because even from an early age, we are fascinated with the forbidden. If something you want is forbidden, what would you do to get it? That's the question. That's the question that's front and center in the life of King Ahab today. What I'd like to do is tell a very curious story from 1 Kings chapter 21. It's a story about King Ahab and a certain forbidden vineyard. And as we examine the story, we'll see the lengths that Ahab and his wife go to get this vineyard. And I think with conviction, we'll find today that there's a little bit of Ahab in all of our hearts. So the story plays out in three acts. First, we're going to see the king's proposal. Second, we're going to see the queen's deception. And then third, we're going to see the prophet's rebuke. The king's proposal, the, prof- the queen's deception, and the prophet's rebuke. Let's pray as we begin today. Heavenly Father, I come before you and I thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, I thank you for um, the way that you love us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And today I ask that you would help us to examine our hearts Help us to see what you have to teach us from the life of King Ahab and from this story in 1 Kings 21. Help us to know more about your love and your grace and your mercy. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we first meet King Ahab in 1 Kings 16, which we read before. His story extends all the way to 1 Kings chapter 22. Ahab rules over the northern kingdom of Israel, and here's the introduction we get to Ahab in 1 Kings 16.33, which Scott read before. It says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, than, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, if we could just pause and take that in, let's recognize that there was a lot of bad kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. And we're told here that Ahab was the worst of the worst kings. And that reality hits a fever pitch in the passage we studied last week in 1 Kings 18, where Ahab was very clearly sold out to Baal over Yahweh. But if you read Ahab's story, you find that he's a really complicated figure. Because over and over again in Ahab's story, we see God trying to get his attention and turn his heart back to him time and again. Ahab misses the point and pursues things other than God. And that's going to be clear in our story in 1 Kings chapter 21. So let's go there. Chapter 21 verse 1 says this. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. So right at the beginning, we're introduced to another character, a guy named Naboth. And you say, who names their child Naboth? Well, his, his parents apparently do. Well, who is Naboth? Naboth uh, in this, well, our setting is, is a place called Jezreel, and Naboth is a leader of a local influential family. He's a landowner, and his land is right next to the second palace of Ahab. His first palace is up in the capital city of Samaria. The palace was built by Ahab's father, Omri, and, they be, and, it, and it became both a royal and military center of their dynasty. In fact, the size and scope of Jezreel's settlement was meant to show strength to anybody who wanted to invade the land. And it also provided the impetus for the king's proposal to Naboth in verse 2. It says this, And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, 
that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. So you say Ahab wants to buy the vineyard to turn it into a vegetable garden? Huh? I mean, that's like a weird and interesting request. What's up with that? Why is Ahab so interested in Naboth's vineyard? Well, Naboth, I, I think for his part, probably thinks that his property value is pretty good, right? Uh, he's got a, a piece of land right next, to the, uh, right next to the palace. He's living in this safe, secure neighborhood. And then the king offers him this handsome price for the land. Now, in the ancient world, it was commonplace for palace complexes to have a lot of administrative buildings and a large garden. Ahab's palace in Jezreel was lacking this garden, and that's probably why he wants to buy out the little guy and get this piece of land for his real estate conquest. In other words, purchasing the vineyard will allow Ahab's house to look more impressive, and if foreign leaders come, they can walk the garden, and he can show them his, his, his big house and complex. It's a show of strength. Does Naboth take the offer? Look at verse 3. It says, But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And you say, what? How could Naboth turn down such an offer? I mean, I mean on the table here is the prospect of better land. And if he wanted to get out of the grape business, I'm sure Ahab would have been offering over market value for this vineyard. How could Naboth be so foolish? Ahab just wanted the adjacent land. Well, that phrase here, the inheritance of my fathers, gives us a clue. In fact, Naboth's refusal here is based on a scriptural principle found in Leviticus 25.3, which specifically says that the children of Israel were not to sell the land to one another because the property, property belonged to the Lord. Yahweh God had given land to Naboth's family. In other words, the vineyard was, not, was God's, it was not Naboth's to barter with, and his refusal to sell was an, actually an act of obedience. But Ahab's not happy with the response, so look at, look at how, Naboth, or how uh, Ahab, Ahab responds to Naboth's refusal. Verse 4, it says, And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he, Ahab, lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Now, some of you are saying, this, this plays out in my house pretty regularly. Like my teenager or my little kid doesn't get what they want and they're in their bedroom and they're weeping and they're sulking and they're not eating and I'm wondering what's going on. I mean, it, it seems like quite the over-the-top reaction from the king. Naboth doesn't get, or Ahab doesn't get what he wants. He goes into his room and throws a temper tantrum. He, he, he falls into depression over not getting this vineyard. In fact, it reminds me how my, how my three-year-old responds when she doesn't get what she wants. So she'll come up to me and she'll say, Daddy, I want a treat. And I'll say, well, you already had a treat today, so I can't give you one. And then she'll try to barter with me. She'll say, well, well, how about we get a different treat? And I'll say no again, and then she'll run in her room and start crying. So it's nice to know that the king of Israel is acting just like my three-year-old. Ahab's real estate venture did not go according to plan. The vineyard was forbidden. Now, Ahab's response, I think, gives us a key point of application here, and it's this. 
our response to rejection reveals what's in our soul. Our response to rejection reveals what's in our soul. And Ahab's response here was to sulk. But the story gets more complicated because his wife, Jezebel, shows up. Now, you may have heard about Jezebel. She's got quite the reputation. And she asks him a question. She looks at him and says, Ahab, why are you so upset? Like, you you look down today. What's going on? And Ahab whines. He goes, Naboth won't give me his vineyard. Oh, my life is so hard. Which is actually not true. It's actually a misrepresentation of what Naboth said. Because the whole reason Naboth would not sell the vineyard is because it was not his to sell. But this is what we do when we don't get our own way. We tell the story in a way that makes us seem like the victim. And then, like Ahab did with Jezebel, we talk to people who will tell us what we want to hear. Now, there's two other points I want to draw out right here. And the first one is this. People with perceived power can't handle the word no. Right? We see this too often in the news. It's the truth behind things like sexual abuse scandals or money embezzlement scandals or college admission scandals even, right? People in these situations would not take no for an answer, and it led them down a dark path. And so I would ask you, Christian, how do you respond when you are told no? Do you accept that the door is closed, or do you whine like Ahab? Now, second, when leaders don't fear God, it will lead to disaster, when leaders don't fear God, it will lead to disaster. And so there's a, there's a clear contrast between Naboth and Ahab in this story. Naboth would not sell the vineyard because he recognized it, it was not his own. And his desire was obedience to God. Ahab wanted the vineyard for himself, and he couldn't function unless he got it. In other words, Ahab's trust was in himself, not God. So ask yourself, in what areas of my life am I trusting myself rather than God? Because when you get rejected, will you trust God? Or will you go to great lengths to acquire that forbidden fruit, whatever it is in your life? Now again, the story takes another interesting twist because after Ahab tells Jezebel what's happened, she looks at him and says this in verse 7. She says, do you not govern Israel? Right? In other words, aren't you the king don't be a weakling. Go and take what you want. That's what she's saying. And then Jezebel says these ominous words in verse 7. She says, I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. How? Well, that gets us to the second movement, the queen's deception. The queen's deception. Now, before we examine Jezebel's plan, it's worth spending just a moment on her background and I think also on the implications of who we marry. So first, Jezebel was not an Israelite. She was the daughter of the Phoenician ruler from the cities of Tyre and Sidon. So whenever you hear the word Sidonians in the Bible, that's Jezebel's people. She was an outsider. She worshipped foreign gods. And when she married Ahab, she brought her false worship with her. Now second, because of her Phoenician background, she had a different idea of how a king should rule. So in her culture, the king was above the law, and the land was considered a property of the crown. By way of contrast, in Israel, the land was ultimately Yahweh's, and the king was subject to the same covenant as everyone else. Now what we have here is a difference in worldview, and that serves as the foundation for her action in the next section. Look at verse 8. 
It says, so she, Jezebel, wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. Now, let me just put this in modern terms right here, what she's doing. Basically, when she sends letters in Ahab's name, it's like it's equivalent to a wife responding to her husband's emails without his knowledge and as if she was him. Now, remember how the last section ended? Jezebel said, well, I'll get you that forbidden vineyard no, essentially no matter what. Ahab, if you, can't get, get, if you can't do what needs to be done, I'll do it, she says. What's her plan? Look at verse 9. It says, and she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast <clears throat> and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Now notice, where is Ahab while all this is happening? Lying in bed and weeping over his lost vineyard. See, the truth is, as wicked as Ahab was, Jezebel was worse. Right? She was decisive. She was clever. She was more deadly. In other words, she was an unruly political animal and would do whatever and say whatever she needed to achieve power. That's who Jezebel was. And Jezebel and Ahab were made for each other. And so I feel compelled to mention just, just two types of people listening today. First, first, if you're here and you're married. If you're married, no matter how long you've been married, ask yourself, am I pushing my spouse towards the Lord and his ways or away from him? Because Ahab up to this point had not been obedient to God. Jezebel made it worse. This was a dysfunctional political marriage and was designed for danger. Now, second, maybe you're listening today and you're not married. And I would simply say, be careful who you choose. <laughs> Ahab married a woman who did not share his worldview, and it didn't go well. Now, whom you marry is such an important decision. Choose wisely. And that includes whom you date when you're, even when you're a teenager or a young adult, because the purpose of dating is to prepare for marriage. So why waste your time dating somebody who's outside the faith? that it's not wise to marry. Choose wisely. And let Ahab's choice serve as a warning to you because Jezebel was a destructive force in Ahab's life. So let's, let's recap her plan right now. First, first, she forges this letter to these leaders in Jezreel. Second, she concocts a plan against Naboth's life by ordering this day of fasting and getting a bunch of people together. And then third, she buys off two people who are going to lie about Naboth. They're going to claim that Naboth has committed blasphemy and treason against the king. I mean, listen, this is ruthless what she's doing right here. This is something you would see in the New York mafia or like a, a Chicago politician who will, who will take people out if they're in their way. I mean, no mincing words. That's what she did. Because Naboth would not sell his vineyard to Ahab out of obedience to God, Jezebel sets him up and gets a few influential people to go along with her plan. In fact, they're, they're, they're so immoral, they're even called worthless men in the text. Look at what happens if you skip down to verse 13. It says, And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. That's Naboth. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. 
So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. Now, it's just an accusation. Naboth doesn't even get to defend himself, and then he's out of the city getting stoned to death. And that was Jezebel's plan. It was complete. Naboth was dead for the crime of being faithful to God. <laughs> now, there is so much wrong in what Jezebel did, but you've got to admit, her deception was masterful. Right? That's what she does. But again, where is the king? What will the king of Israel the king of God's people say about this when he finds out. Look at how the section ends, verse 15 and 16. It says, As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive but dead. What is, Naboth, what is Ahab going to do when he hears this? Verse 16, and as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite and take possession of it. Now worth noting, Ahab doesn't even ask a question. Naboth, I mean the guy who he had been bartering with just a little while ago over this forbidden vineyard is suddenly dead and he doesn't even ask how it happened. Gee, honey, that's so sad. I was just talking with Naboth the other day. How did this happen? Uh, is his family okay? Nope. Doesn't even ask that. Doesn't even bother. He just gets up and immediately goes down and takes what he wants. The fruit is now his. Now, there's so much to say about this section, but I just want to draw out a, a key point of application here, and that is this. Unjust actions have devastating consequences. Unjust actions have devastating consequences. So the queen's deception and the king's allowance of it led to the death of an innocent man. I mean, in addition to all the allowance of false worship that Ahab has done, he adds these litany of charges, murder and theft and coveting, all of which violate the Ten Commandments. And that's why I asked earlier in the message, what would you do for your forbidden fruit? How far would you go? Or how far would you allow other people to go? Because, a a listen, Ahab allowed Jezebel to do his dirty work here. And, and in, in that line, there's several other points to consider that we don't want to miss. The first thing I would say is that we need to be mindful of our coveting. Because in this story, murder and theft came as a result of coveting, the, the coveting that dominated Ahab's heart. He coveted the vineyard, and then he was willing to steal and kill for it, or at least allow that to happen. Second, resist the use of government for personal gain, because that's what Ahab and Jezebel did here. And this is the point we should be mindful of as we consider elected leaders, because Ahab's role as king, as specified in Deuteronomy 18, was to protect the people God had entrusted to him. Instead, he oppressed and abused the people under his rule. When God gave us government to restrain evil, not perpetuate it, Ahab violated that. And both Ahab and Jezebel are examples of people who want power at any cost, and people who want power 
just for the sake of power, should never be allowed to get it. They will not rule in the interest of others, but of themselves. And then finally, Christians should speak up against injustice. What happened to Naboth here was a tragedy. Not only did he lose his life, but his family lost their property. And what's worse, the people of God were the ones committing these atrocities. And as we'll see later, God's judgment will fall on them for their actions. Unjust actions have consequences. And as people of God, we should speak up when we see injustice in our midst. So the rejection of the king's proposal led to the queen's deception. Ahab got what he wanted. But at what cost? Our final movement shows a rebuke of the king's actions. So finally, there's the prophet's rebuke. Now, what Ahab and Jezebel did was wicked, and so God calls up the prophet Elijah again. He calls him up to rebuke Ahab. And you may remember again that Elijah was at the center of our story last week. Just three chapters ago, Elijah was in a throwdown with Ahab and his prophets. Now he has to go confront Ahab again, and he's got to be like, God, really, this guy again? What is going on? Elijah's got to be getting tired of these conversations. But God says, Elijah, listen, Ahab's about to take possession of the vineyard. I want you to go confront him and give him a stern warning because I'm still after Ahab's heart. And so Elijah goes, and as soon as Ahab sees him, he's like, oh my goodness, this guy again, he's coming to talk with me. And he knows how to give him a greeting. Look at verse 20. Ahab sees Elijah and he says this, have you found me, O my enemy? quite the greeting. Even Ahab, again, knows these conversations are getting tiresome. He looks at Elijah and says, what do you want? Even though he knows exactly why Elijah's there. I mean, Ahab knows what he and Jezebel did to Naboth. He's rejecting the prophetic, prophetic voice of Elijah in his life. But faithful to God's call, Elijah speaks. And I got to tell you, God gives Elijah some of the best monologue soliloquies in the Bible. Look at what Elijah says to Ahab here, and hopefully this will get our attention. Verse 20, he answered, Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. Verse 23, and of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. <laughs> wow. Elijah has such a way with words. <laughs> but I mean, listen. <laughs> When Elijah brings a word to Ahab, it's never a good word. It's, it's a harsh word of rebuke, and essentially he should listen up. Elijah was there to tell Ahab he had gone too far in his pursuit of the forbidden, and now there will be a consequence. And this, this prophecy that he mentions here in these four verses will eventually come true for both of them. Ahab will die in several chapters in battle when a stray arrow goes and pierces in between his, his, his armor, like an odd thing to happen, and then he dies. Second Kings chapter 9, Jezebel is going to be thrown from a window 
trampled by horses, and dogs eat her body. I mean, it, it, it's even more graphic if you go and read it. Like, she meets an unruly end, just like he does. Quite literally, both of them paid for Naboth's vineyard with their blood. Was it worth it? See, Elijah delivers this word to Ahab, and his point is clear. Stop playing games with God. And I think that's the point for all of us today. Because some of us listening, or you're here today, we've been treating our Christian life like it's a game. Right? Like, like Ahab, we, we want to pursue that forbidden fruit and push the envelope as much as we can to acquire it, when in fact we should be like Naboth, seeking God's glory. Instead, we're like Ahab, seeking our own glory and fame. And so we need to hear that today. God doesn't play games. And some of us here might be playing, have been playing games for a long time. And one day a prophet's going to show up and bring a rebuke. And so I would ask, I would just ask two questions. What are you hiding? Or what do you think you're hiding? Because some of us are pursuing that forbidden fruit in secret, and we think no one knows. We peruse the internet when no one's looking. We talk about a certain person behind their back. We have a secret bank account for private purchases. Second, ask yourself, is there a prophetic voice in my life that I'm ignoring? Because maybe not all our actions are in secret. Perhaps you've been confronted by a friend and you've chosen to ignore it. Let me implore you today, heed the voice of the Lord and turn back to him. And if you think you can't or you think you're too far gone, look at the end of Ahab's section. Look at verse 25 and 26. It says this. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord uh, left out before the people of Israel. Now, these, these two verses are an editorial note. The author is reminding us just how bad Ahab is. Again, if you think you're bad, Ahab's worse. And as we read at the beginning, he's the worst king of the, of the long line of bad kings, so you would not expect what happens next in verse 27. It says this, And when Ahab heard these words, the words that Elijah spoke, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. Now some commentators disagree about this, but it sure looks to me like Ahab is repenting of his sins here. And you say, Ahab, really? This guy? who's been just rejecting God for years and years and years? Yes. After all the confrontations and all the interventions with Elijah, the words have finally sunk in. Ahab was finally able to see his sin before God, and it moved him to action. So I would just ask, how about you? Is there something in your life where the Lord has been speaking prophetically to you and you've been ignoring? Again, I would exhort you, stop playing games with God. Don't run away from him. Run towards him. You don't need to tear your clothes, but you do need to fall at the feet of your Savior. And for some of us who don't believe that God will forgive us and give us mercy, we think we're too far gone, farther gone than Ahab, we have to know that we have a God who rebukes us with open arms. 
He rebukes us because he wants us to run back to him. And look at what he says about Ahab in verse 28 and 29. It says, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab was, has humbled himself before me? <laughs> like, Elijah, have you seen it? Do you believe it? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. The Lord was pleased with Ahab's humble repentance. In fact, he's been waiting for Ahab to finally turn to him for a long time. So as we conclude our time today, I would just, I would just challenge you with one final point of action, and that's this. Build biblical confession in your life. Build biblical confession in your life. And that's a discipline that we often run away from, but we need it. <laughs> the scriptures tell us to confess our sins to one another. It's a good thing. When we confess our sins, we receive mercy, just as God gave Ahab mercy. So find a good Christian friend this week and ask, can I regularly confess my sins to you? Because in doing so, we experience the gospel. And in the gospel, we, we taste, we get the sweet taste of God's mercy. Ahab's forbidden fruit was a vineyard. And that vineyard probably produced some sweet wine to the lips. And it's a reminder to us that our Savior, Jesus Christ, at the last meal before he died, took a cup of wine and said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. It was not a vineyard, but our lives that were purchased with his blood. And because of his sacrifice, we have all the mercy we need when we run to him in repentance. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us, and then uh, Johnny and Christine are going to do one final song today. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we thank you for your, your goodness and grace in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to experience your mercy in a very fresh way today, Lord. Father, I pray for those that are listening. Um, Father, help us to confess. Help us to bring our sins before you and know that you are a God who loves us and who cares for us. You're the God who rebukes us with open arms because you want us to run to you. We love you, Father. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.